Kia ora hello everybody and welcome to Epic Aotearoa Create a Better Future podcast where every week we share uplifting messages told by New Zealanders in their own words. Our mission is to share the learnings from those lived experiences, inspire our listeners to take positive action and go out there and create a better future. Proudly brought to you by co-founders Joe Hortai, former soldier in the Special Air Service, family man and aspiring entrepreneur, and Brian Osman, a knowledge engineer, family man, entrepreneur and all-round good dude. Thank you for connecting with us today. Now let's get started and create a better future. Let's go. Everybody and welcome back to Epic Aotearoa Create a Better Future podcast where once again we are privileged to have another amazing guest on the show today. During this conversation we're going to talk about what our guest has learnt over the course of more than 15 years in HR across multiple industries including some tips and tricks if we're lucky, being in business with a spouse and how do you make that work and what that's like, battling through and overcoming cancer. This is a touch point which we're really going to spend a bit of time in because we feel that it will be of great benefit to our listeners. What that journey and battle through cancer has taught our guest about life and purpose, mustering the strength to continue to fight through the pain no matter what. How those lived experiences, struggles and successes continue to be applied daily into her life plus so much more. Aotearoa, New Zealand, our guest today was born in Fiji, migrated to New Zealand at a very young age with her family. She works, as I mentioned, in the, as a recruiter in the supply chain and operations across multiple industries. She is a franchisee owner, owning multi-unit subway stores with her husband, and she is a cancer survivor. Above all else, ladies and gentlemen, she is a devoted wife and mother of two real children, she tells me, and two fur children. Ladies and gentlemen, Aotearoa, New Zealand, the one and only Arti Patel. Kia ora, Arti, and welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for being on. Um, man, you have such uh, a really compelling and interesting story. And, and I'll probably speak a little bit about how we got connected and how it came across each other and, and that piece as we go a little bit along. But what I'd like to do, if it's all right with you, is I'd just like to give our audience a bit of a background about yourself and start with some really basic questions and so, so that we can get to know you a little bit more. So how old were you, Adi, when you and your family immigrated from Fiji to New Zealand? Uh, I hadn't started primary school, so I think about four or just under five. Right. So just out of kin- kindergarten, actually. So, um, right. yeah, quite young. Yeah. And siblings? Did you just come out? Was it mum, dad? Plus oh, well, I have, I'm, I'm one of five. I'm one the youngest five. of five. Um, but I came after, I came after 12 years. So my siblings were very grown up and off doing their own thing. So, um Almost it growing up, it just felt like being an only child sometimes as well, because yeah. you know these these um, from twelve to sixteen years between the, my oldest sibling and the fourth sibling, just sort of before me. Yeah, right. Well, okay. So you're the baby of the family, the favourite, yeah, yeah. eh? Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that answers that question. So, I guess, what was the catalyst? for your family to move from yeah. Fiji to New Zealand? Um, I, well, I guess I think my brothers and sisters were already here. So they were here studying and um, 
there, there was a lot of um, political unrest in the 80s going on. There was a coup and um, and I guess my father just sort of just felt that it was just not the right environment for our family. Yeah. So we sort of, well, my parents, they sold up and wrapped things up and moved over here just to be closer to the other kids as well and, and I guess just build a better life as most migrants do. Mm, that's awesome. Would, mm. would your parents have come if it wasn't for that coup at that time, do you think? Or did they, oh, did they that's an interesting question. I... I actually don't know, and I can't ask them because I think my father was kind of the catalyst, and he's no longer around. Um, but yeah, they lived a really comfortable life. Like we were pretty sort of. Um, my father had a really good job, and and in those sort of early eighties, he was earning a decent wage and um, kind of lived the high life. So I think um, I think he. If I were to guess, I would say if that didn't happen, I think he would have just continued to stay there and just, you know, make the most of that lifestyle. Yeah, right. Okay. And so because you've come over at such a young age, I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, you've sort of, I guess, felt comfortable in the environment growing up here in Aotearoa? Yeah. Or yeah? No Absolutely. I mean, I identify myself as a Kiwi and, and I've been, you know, here for more than, you know, or not more than, but almost 40 years. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, going to primary school, that was a little bit of a challenge because I guess we weren't as multicultural in the sort of mid-80s. Mm. There was uh, perhaps a little bit more lack of tolerance or empathy. So, I, you know, there, there, it, it, was, it was just a very brief struggle, I think, and I can only think of one or two very temporary encounters that sort of made me feel a bit uneasy. But overall, my... my my growing up and my journey has been really pleasant and, you know, I've made some really nice connections, you know, just growing up. I grew up in South Auckland oh, right. um, and, and, and the Bronx. The I Bronx. went to James Cook High School. <laughs> so, um, Which, you know. high school was that? James Cook High School. James Cook, right. Yeah. So, um, so yes, yeah, so I've made some really good connections and, um, you yeah, know, I didn't have um, – I, 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 I don't recall, but I don't think there's anything that stands in my memory around any sort of traumatic experiences, just the odd struggle, but nothing really. And, and yeah, and it, it didn't take a very long time to adjust to the culture and, you know, the language and everything. So, yeah. Oh, beautiful. That's great to hear. Thank you for sharing that. And it's nice for us and for myself to get to know you a little bit more with that background info. Yeah. So I'm going to yeah. skip forward a little bit and fast forward. So you're... Married, two real children. What are that? Was it boy, girls? What's the two boys? Uh, yeah, so uh, I was, I've been married for about sixteen years now, and um, I have a twelve-year-old and a ten-year-old, and um, we just adopted our puppy. Because right, yeah. <laughs> people either have a lockdown baby or they have a lockdown puppy. <laughs> <laughs> So we've just adopted our um, puppy. He's ten weeks old, and. Um, yeah, we got our cat um, two years ago. So in 2019, when I, which probably was the worst year of my life, mm -hmm. when um, I was dealing with cancer, um, I kind of needed that year to just 
be reflective of something a little bit more positive for my family and my children than it being the year that my mum had cancer. So I guess it's, it's, it's a discussion my husband and I sort of battled over the years, even before we had kids, where he's a cat lover and he wanted to get a cat. And I was like, no, 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 no pets. And then my son sort of, my oldest was then on my case for a little while. And then I kind of thought, you know, when you have a life-changing event like that, your perspective on a lot of things change. And as I sort of thought about it, I sort of thought, well, it's it's 2019 is not going to be the year that mummy had cancer and she was not around. It's going to be a positive year. It's going to be the year that we brought Bex home. So my cat's Bex. She was named after David Beckham because um, she's also a ping pong soccer fanatic. <laughs> um, my kids at that time really into soccer. I mean, you know, we're a very sporty family anyway. Um, and they were both really into their sort of Euro soccer as well. So, um, yeah, so Becky, Bex, named after Beckham, but she's a girl. And, um, yeah. And, and the dog. And puppy. So, yeah, funny story about the puppy. So, um, you know, the first last year when we went into lockdown, I think it was a signal of all of us going a bit mad <laughs> and running out of quality content to talk about. So my children and I, we bought a house, and we bought a house in a road called Douglas Road. And um, we were talking about moving into our house. We were renting at the time. And um, we sort of thought, imagine if we moved into Douglas Road and we got a dog and we named him Douglas and he would be Douglas who lived on Douglas Road. So that's how the idea was conceived. And then... And then my kids and I, for more than a year, had discussions about what Douglas would look like. So, you know, we started watching, I can't remember, there's a show on TV. Um, it's a UK show. It's about, you know, puppies and dogs um, being adopted. So we were trying to figure out what breed would suit a Douglas or us. And eventually we agreed a golden retriever. So it's funny. <laughs> um, we were, my kids and I were so involved in this discussion about Douglas and him being such a big part of the three of us in our imaginations that before we moved into our house, one day my son woke up and said, Mommy, I had a dream about Douglas. And I had to say, Douglas the house or Douglas the dog? <laughs> he was like, Douglas the dog. <laughs> and so, um, so, so then we kind of realized again, um, I guess I just learned if I want to do something, um, life is too short and I'm going to go and do it now anyway. And I really wanted to, I really wanted to have that experience of, you know, that love <laughs> from a fur animal. Um, so yeah, so I, it, it's, I've been on a waiting list with a couple of different people because golden retrievers, which is what we got, you know, they're uh, very difficult right. to get. So um, I was just fortunate when this lockdown happened, it kind of just every the stars lined up and we found him. And um, yeah, he's been with us for two weeks and we are loving having him. Oh, that's fantastic and beautiful story. Um, thank you for sharing those. And this is just helping <laughs> shape because uh, you've touched on some points there, which we are really going to delve into, particularly with your journey in yeah. 2019 in particular. Yeah. We'll come back to those. But I just want to get a little bit more information, if I can, about your husband. What does your husband do when you aren't yeah. working together on the businesses with Subway and stuff? So, so Benet, um, my husband's name is Benet, he, um, he and I met um, late in the 1990s. He, um, for more than 20 years, he's very entrepreneurial, yeah. so he finished high school and never actually got a job. He bought a video, his parents helped him buy a video wow. store. So for more than 20 odd years, you know, he had a United video yeah. store, then he changed over to an Australian outfit, had a network video store. So he's always been very entrepreneurial. So I uh, met him at his video <laughs> store. What, were, you, were you renting some videos at the time? 
No, no, my best friend, who's still my best friend, uh, used to work for him. And um, my, my, my introduction to him was through um, just some very negative discussions my girlfriend used to have about her boss um, yeah. on a Monday, <laughs> you know, as you, as you do in between lectures at uni when you talk about how your weekend was and then she talks about how she couldn't do her reading at work because her boss told her he, she can't read. And so, you know, that was my intro to my husband. Um, and, and the, you know, um, long story short, we were friends for a number of years and we started dating and got married. Um, and then, of course, sort of um, about – Eight years ago, we realised that what he was doing wasn't a very viable um, uh, income source for us and he ne- needed to, I guess, expand, uh, you know, his entrepreneurial skill set into a different area. And um, he explored many sort of food. Food was what he was interested in because I guess he's done his research and he knows there's a lot of um, business potential to earn money in the food sector. People will always want to buy food. Um, and then, you know, we sort of landed on the subway concept and he always said to me, look, you know, I'd love it if, you know, because I always, I did my stuff, you know, I've yeah. worked in HR and I, I, I remember saying to him, you know, I didn't go to university to get up at six o'clock to bake bread. So I don't think this gig's for me. Um, but that was a very narrow-minded approach I had, I realise now. And, you know, being in business is a lot more than just getting out of bed and baking bread and cookies. It's about um, watching that growth and watching that success and um, making a profitable business. So he eventually convinced me and um, – when I did work in HR, I used to work part-time, so I used to have Fridays off, and I used to be his right. girl Friday. I used to be the cashier at the store because I, I sucked at <laughs> making sandwiches and wrapping them up in the subway paper. So I did that for a little while, and then I thought, well, you know, I'm losing my free time because I'm still I'm working and I'm a mother, and I still need to clean my house and do my stuff and have me time. So then I sort of said, look, you just do your stuff, and I'll just you know I'll support you in the background. We'll use my HR skills and my people skills, and I will help you find stuff because one of the biggest challenges for us at the moment, other than COVID, is staffing. So I do help him and support him quite a bit. But if I'm being really honest, I've really backed off, and since I got sick, I've sort of um, taught the man to fish. So, um, you know, he's very self-sufficient now to, um, you know, do his own sort of people finding, but, you know, he'll still come home and say, I've got this situation. What shall I do? And what do you think? So, you know, we still have those discussions and I help him, but I, in all honesty, it's probably my name's on the piece of paper, but it's pretty much his gig now. He does everything. And if I were to go in there and, and work in the store, I'd be really lost because a business is constantly evolving. The subway model is really is, is, is a very um, evolved beast. And they're always trying to be innovative and staying ahead of competition. So I've been out of the game for a little while. And I'm quite happy just to yeah. keep that separation to do my thing and, and he does his we, thing. We, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And if he needs to end a trial period, I'll go and do that for him or, um, you know, have a, have, have a discussion about attendance. I'll go and do that with him because that's where I'm comfortable and that's my background. But, um, yeah, I think he and I are sort of comfortable now where he does his things and I do mine. Perfect. That's awesome. Well, you've answered that question mm. too in terms of was going to be one of the questions of how you make that work, which will come up a bit later on yeah. between the two of you. So. Um, what I want to get into now, before I get into the big C um, with regards mm. to what you've been through, because that's probably going to take mm. a, a majority of our conversation, which is great. 
I do want to, if it's okay with you, just continue on this this sort of HR path in terms of mm. finding out, particularly with the uncertainty, and you sort of touched on it with this pandemic and stuff that's happening and businesses mm. needing staffing and companies unfortunately needing to close down and or let people go. Mm. I guess what, from your experience and your involvement for a number of years in this space, and what little I know about HR, there's quite an, it's quite, it can be quite complex in a number of facets around it. And I was just wondering if you could give us a yeah. summary for those of our audience that might not have such a clear idea of HR, a brief summary or mm. high-level overview of what HR encompasses. Yeah, I mean, as I tell my kids, this is a real basic level thing that I do all the hiring and firing. Um, But I guess HR is just about, you know, you've got sales and marketing, they sell stuff. You've got finance, they do numbers. HR is all about the people. Um, So, you know, it is all about supporting the business's people strategy around what talent we need in the business, uh, having a talent or a sourcing strategy around how we're going to get those people into the business, how are we going to recruit them, are we going to do it ourselves, do we have money to work with a recruiter like myself to bring them in, Um, you know, how are we going to bring the talent to the business. That's probably the first, so that's a recruitment piece of HR. I mean, I've done, I've worked across the broad generalist spectrum of HR, so I've done recruitment. Um, I can live and breathe recruitment, particularly in-house. I'm still feeling my way in agency. Um, and, and, you know, once you've got the people and that's about onboarding, that's a big part of HR. It's about not HR onboarding the people. It's about line managers and the people who are the senior people in the organisation who are looking after these people that you're bringing in. It's about how they're onboard people because data tells us that, you know, a new employee will probably leave their position in the first six months of being there if they haven't been inducted properly or if they haven't been given an opportunity to be um Uh, you know, orientated well into the business. So induction is a really important process. So as an HR practitioner, my job is to work with managers around, you know, are you having regular catch-ups with your employees? Are you tackling performance issues or any concerns early enough? Are you documenting those? Are you following up? Do you have a process? Because HR is all about process. Do you have written and documented processes? Because then that makes performance management, which is the next facet, really, really easy. And you're a manager, so you will understand that that any time, um, you know, so you've got the talent, you've brought them in, you've inducted them, you've ensured that they've seamlessly transitioned into your business. You've set them up with a buddy that's part of induction. You've trained them to do their job. If you've done all of those things in an ideal world, you don't need us because between you and your team member, things are happening. But then there are times when um, your new employee is not performing, then you will come to HR and have that discussion about performance and, well, what tools or what can we do in order to facilitate or bring performance up to the expectation that it needs to be. So, um, you know, that's when we are talking to you about what um, our policies are, what our tools are, how we run that process. And, you know, quite often managers are either very confident and they just need us on a need-to-know basis or sometimes they just need us to pretty much hold their hand right through the process from when they walk into their office to your office to say, I've got Joe, he doesn't come to work on Monday and Friday, I just don't know what to do and he does this, has been doing it for the last two weeks. Um, and then, you know, we kind of 
doing that end-to-end process around performance management. And if it's a disciplinary meeting, we're having those disciplinaries. We're guiding our managers on the best practice around fear and reasonable and timely and all that sort of stuff, which if you don't do properly, you know, it could cost your organisation hugely because, you know, if you have one process that's not legal or lawful, your employee will go out and get a um, no-win, no-fee employment lawyer who's not costing your employee anything but costing you a lot of time and potentially legal fees because, you know, you've stepped up to your internal process and you've not got the right advice. So that's where we add value, you know, and people don't have time for HR in an organisation. We are, you know, we looked at, you know, HR hardly realistic um, or, you know, we're all about the soft and fluffy and the fun things. But, you know, we do, there's a place for us. You know, we might be on your case about doing your checking in on your people, you know, in, in the first week and in the first month and in the first two months. But the method to our madness is, you know, if you're able to and you've got trial periods or um, probationary periods, there's a reason why we do that is because we don't want to be your ambulance at the bottom of the cliff when you come to us on day 85 and say, how much time have we got left? Can you guys clean up this mess for me? So there's a reason we do what we do. We're not all about let's just, you know, hold hands and talk about stuff. The reason we're saying to you to keep talking to your people is about the early intervention and, you know, addressing those issues early so you can have a process. So HR, they just do so much more. And ultimately, I left my job. I love doing what I did. Um but I left my job because um, COVID had a bit of an impact. Uh, the business was uh, not making money. And um, they actually, since I left, they announced in June that they were closing down the operations in New Zealand anyway. So it was a good move for me to move on. But I guess I felt really drained. Um, I, at the end of last year, spent a big part of that time uh, doing a lot of mass redundancies before Christmas. And then I came back in the new year and I started doing a lot more redundancies. And then I realised to work in HR, you know, your cup needs to be quite full before you can fill other people's cups. And we are quite often also um, the extra scaffolding for our line managers who are worn out and fatigued. And I was at a stage where there wasn't much left in my cup to be able to pour it into whether it's supporting our employees or supporting our managers. And um, and funny story, and I tie my subway journey into this, is having my own business and looking at the numbers, and I've never been a numbers person, has just made me kind of realise that I want to work in a sales-driven role. I want to be in a position where um, I can see um, success, I can measure success and I can look at numbers and they can make sense to me. So I wanted to get out of HR because it had sucked a lot of life and effort out of me for the last so many years and I wanted to take those transferable skills that I had and I wanted to actually um, work and and my recruitment job is a little bit like um, running my own business anyway. I run my sector with my clients and my candidates and I get really motivated to see the results of, you know, um, having really good candidates and, um, you know, keeping that client relationship where I've got really good clients who want to come back to me for that repeat business. So that that's kind of yeah. how 
I'm sure that was your question for me around how I made my transition. So that is how um, my um, my transition happened. And I'm a really big believer of networking um, and and networking my way into sort of the sector. So. Um, yeah, and I haven't looked back. And it's funny, I had a discussion with my manager on Friday and he said to me, if you had the chance to go back in-house, I wonder what you would say. And I said to him, look, I'm just loving the fast pace and the variety and pretty safe because as much as I miss the people I used to work with, but I don't, you know, I'm loving the work that I'm doing right now. So it was a good fit for me to make that move. Yeah, it sounds like it. Man, that's awesome. Such a... And, and the facets that you've explained, and I, as you mentioned, there's so much more mm. to what HR mm. encompasses and what you guys do. You, you actually answered one of the next questions which I was going to mm. ask you. I, I would imagine it's quite stressful and mentally draining, but you sort of already spoke to that with the cup being quite low at yeah. that time. Yeah, right? so, it is. And, you know, in the early part of my career when I used to make um, – uh, those be involved in those decisions around, you know, those separation journeys, as I call them, or terminations yeah. and dismissals. I used to really, um, really have a hard time, you know, kind of switching off, coming home, and just thinking about the fact that my role actually has the impact of making or breaking somebody's career. At the moment, I'm a career maker, and I love that part of my role. But you know, it, that I have such an impact on actually somebody's career but you know I give myself reassurance in knowing if we've done our process correctly then ultimately it's not my decision it's somebody else's decision that they have just talked themselves out of a role so that's how I deal with it um but yeah it's been tough um but I guess as I say to my kids as well and it's one of the things and I encountered this from my HR world and my recruitment world whether you are 43 like me or 63, um, you're never too old to try something new um, and never be afraid to try something new because a lot of the times and a lot of people that I talk to at the moment, people don't have that confidence to back themselves and to know that they are capable of doing what somebody else might tell them that they're capable of doing. So I guess I'm living proof that, you know, you could have done something for a very, very long mm -hmm. time. But if you have the mindset and the attitude and the interest and just a little bit of support around you, that it is possible to. And, you know, in COVID, you know, pilots are, mm -hmm. you know, sorting yeah, mail. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's proof that if the mindset is there and if the attitude's there, it is possible. Perfect. Yeah, that's that's incredible. That's mm. um, bang on. I love the points that you've just mentioned there about that willing, mm. being willing and being open to grow and to change mm. and to develop. And it's, it is, you're right, you're, we're never, it's never too yeah. late. Yeah, you know, give yourself permission to try something okay. new because you might actually yeah, love yeah. it, you know? Love that statement. Yeah. Give permission. That's awesome. Oh, that sort of mm. segues into a question that I have for you. What have been some of the greatest lessons that you've learned in your very long career to date so far and even with what you're doing now in and around, you know, mm. being a career maker and or being involved in those earlier aspects in the internal realm of HR? What have been some of the greatest lessons that you've learned and how do you continue to try to apply those each day? I guess the greatest lesson is, you know, 
everybody is different. There is not one mold for every person. And for me, and, and you know, I only speak for myself. I can't speak yeah. for anybody else. But I'm a very adaptable person, and I say that I'm an easy-to-get-on-with person. So, you know, I I don't look at people um, uh, in the sense I can't treat everybody the same. What I've learned is everybody's different, and particularly in some of those difficult conversations that I've had with people in my career, you know, you can never you can yeah. I guess the most um, the biggest standing out feature for me would be you can't judge a book by its cover. So, you know, you can't ever make a decision without fully knowing there's two sides to every story that's what I've learned there's always two sides to every story and you can be the most successful person you can have a lot of money and make a lot of money but if you can never have the ability to look at something from all perspectives, then I don't think you can truly call yourself, you know, well-informed. So I think, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. And I learned that through, you know, that's why HR has the process around, you know, um, employment law is very focused um, to be um, favouring the yeah. employee. But in the same token, the HR processes that are there around fair process and giving an employee the opportunity to comment and all that sort of stuff is just so that from an HR point of view, you know, you have explored every angle of the situation before you make your decision. And that's a life learning for me as well. Like, you know, even if I am mad at my husband because I wrote 10 things on the shopping list and he only bought nine and left the 10th off, instead of getting mad at him and saying, you know, as usual, you know, you just can't get it right. You know, it's 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 just about, well, why didn't you get it? Why did you forget? Oh, well, you know, I saw blah, blah, so I talked to them and then saw the checkout and then just walked over there and, you know. So, and yeah, and then you have to just realise people are human, you know, people make mistakes. So that's the other learning, that the most intelligent person, um, you know, your GM of the business also is capable of making mistakes. People, and, you know, never be afraid of people. And I guess that's one of the things like in this position, there's a big element of business development where I have to pick up the phone and talk to people. And I have to tell myself, you know, what's the worst that can happen. But something I picked up from a colleague last week was you just got to shift it around and tell yourself, well, what's the best that can happen? You know, and ultimately it's all people at the other end of the phone. So lots of lessons, so many. No. I'm a talker. You'll have to you'll have to cut me off oh, if I, I go off a yeah, different tangent. Worry. No, it's great listening to you. You brought up some really great lessons. I love those two sides to every story, and the the empathy side comes seems to come through when you're speaking as well. And particularly as you mentioned, people aren't perfect, right? We'll make mistakes and those sorts of things. But this, I, I love those points, and it sort of ties into this next question from a, maybe a slightly different perspective. I know I get frustrated when I receive applications from people and it mm -hmm. appears blatantly obvious to me that the, the position's been advertised for a role and they haven't even taken the time to um, address the criteria. So, for example, submit your cover letter and mm. resume and they'll just send through a resume mm. or mm. they'll send through a cover letter that was for another job. One's <laughs> got nothing to do with this mm. one. So I guess my question is for you and part of it, and this might tie into that, but 
what are some of the recurring challenges that you see from an HR perspective when trying to recruit the right talent for, to, for roles? Uh, challenges, I mean, at the moment we are in a very talent-tight market just with the yes. border closures. So oh, my current challenge at the moment is um, trying to reply to all the millions of LinkedIn messages yeah. I get from migrant or overseas-based workers who are highly, highly skilled, who I would mm. absolutely love to work with if they were in the country, but saying, I'm sorry, I can't help you but unless yeah. you're in the country because – you know, no employer in New Zealand will want to recruit anybody based yeah. offshore at the moment. Um, but in terms of finding the right fit, the, if, I don't think it's a challenge. I think if you can do your job properly and know how to do your job, you can you can uh, manage even the most biggest challenges. The biggest challenge mm-hmm. is finding the right fit. You've got to know. You've got to know your organisation. So when I've been an in-house recruiter. That's a big plus because I know the organisation and I know every stakeholder in the business. Um, and then you've got to understand what is a fit. Getting the right fit in terms of the skills, the background, the personality, the, the personality and the character to be able to get on with that organisational demographic, that's a big challenge because I could have the most amazing person on paper. But if they've got the personality you know, off a snail, then um, and in a role that needs somebody who's quite dynamic and yeah. highly engaging, then that's not the right fit for me. They they can have all the attributes and qualifications and, you know, have worked across every sector of a manufacturing business, but that's not the right fit. So it's always about getting the fit. So, so to overcome that, it's about, you know, now in an agency – um, it's about knowing your client, knowing them really well, knowing their organisation, knowing their values, and then knowing your candidates and knowing their values. And, and I think once you can do that, then it's about then marrying up that fit. And then once that has happened, then it's around, for me, see, I, I'm working in reverse. It's not about your ability to do the job or your ability to have the experience. Because I'm also a firm believer that people are trainable. As long as you have the right attitude and the right mindset and you're willing to learn and you're prepared to show up to work and you're not precious Mm -hmm. to get your hands dirty, that you are not born with skills and experience. You are trainable. Um, But, you know, do you have that... um, fit to be able to work with XYZ manager in XYZ organization that believes in XYZ principles. Because if you're, you know, if you're going to work for um, the organization that's running the COVID vaccinations and you don't believe in you're an anti-vaxxer, then you're not a good fit at all. Do you know? The points that you talked about then, you just triggered a memory, something that I've heard an experience from mm. previous people that I've been lucky enough to to learn from and they've said they stood in this particular training course mm. that I was on and said there's no such thing as a bad student, only a bad teacher. And I you know, I I sort of took that on board and at times I've been a, a trainer, I've been lucky enough to try to facilitate some education and train people and things and sometimes I, I know that I've struggled with that and from the context that people either haven't picked it up the way that I would have liked them to. And I've reflected on that and gone, man, I've 
and sometimes beat myself up and thought, oh man, I'm not a very good trainer here in this aspect. But I've tried to, you know, mm. tried to ease up on that as well and try to understand and sort of the things that you've just mentioned there as mm. I've tried to understand where that person's coming from or what they don't understand about what I'm trying to teach and connect with them on a more personal mm. level, I've found that we've been able to achieve the results mm. and they've been able to comprehend what they needed to do. Yeah. It's made them feel good about it and it's made mm. me feel a lot better. So I guess I've, I still struggle with that piece. Mm. Uh, but when you're talking about helping people, connecting people and trying to get these things to to work to become that good mm. fit within the organisation – that just yeah, that just triggered that memory for for whatever reason. But I love the way that you've articulated those. But things, yeah, right? it's interesting what you say there. It's no bad student. It's like a conversation that I had with my son. So all of last year, when when we were not in lockdown, he was going for tuitions, and um, he was he we would always have this post tuition discussion around how's it going, how was your hour. I was like, oh, it's okay, and I didn't really understand that. And I said, oh, so what are you doing about it? Mm. And I said, oh, well, did you go back to your tutor and tell her that this is the issue? No. And I said, so how are you going to make sure that you understand what she's teaching you? I don't know. And I said, well, are you going to go back and say to her, can you explain this in a different way? Because maybe the way she's explaining something to you is not making sense to you. But if you just say, I hear you, but I'm just not understanding it. Can you explain the same thing, but in a different way? Because this way, it's I'm just not getting it. And it's like, oh, yeah, can't read their mind, absolutely. Yeah. And young people, they mm. don't have the skills to articulate themselves and, you know, to, to think like that. Great points. Mm. Well, I've loved this conversation around the HR stuff and you've, um, yeah, really been enlightening for me anyway around things and confirmed, confirmed a few things for me as well. But what I want to get into with you, Artie, and I thank you and, and appreciative of you opening up with your particular experience around the big C um, cancer, mm. that being cancer, and I would love to, you know, sort of delve into this space with you because I think it will be very helpful as well as the stuff that you've mentioned already for our listeners. But um, you're a cancer survivor, right? And I was just wondering, can you mm. talk us through, I guess, a couple of key points, and it's okay if you don't remember all these questions all at once because I can go over them, but when you were diagnosed and how long that journey uh, took from when you were first diagnosed? Okay, um, so uh, um, so it was 2018 and it was November and um, my family and I were going on a month-long holiday in December overseas um, to Asia because my husband and I were taking our children to India to um, connect because I'm from Fiji. My husband and his father were both born in New Zealand but I guess ultimately our roots yeah. are connected there. And also, and I just reminded my son of this yesterday, which was, do you know why we took you to India? Was so you could appreciate what you have and mm. what other people don't have. Um, it was also just we felt they were of the right age to um, go and appreciate a little bit of the other side of the world. Um, so we were flying out on a Monday and um, – the Monday before that weekend, so about 10 days before, I discovered a lump. And um, my GP knew about our travel plans because they had been active vaccinating us all for our Asian holidays. So um, I discovered a lump and um, it was painful and um, I sort of thought, gosh, don't really want to go on holiday with this discomfort. So I went to my GP and I was very blasé about it. 
probably like most women because I just kind of thought, oh, you know, oh, it's not going to be me because um, I read the stats. I breastfed both my kids until they were um, over a year old and I am not a smoker and I don't do drugs and and it's not in my history, in my family history. So no, no history of it at all? No. So, um, so I was under this false sense of security that ugh, it's just something. It can't be breast cancer. Um, and, you know, Plunkett, midwives, and our hospital system do a really good job of, I guess, negatively conditioning women when they say breastfeed your baby. Breastfeeding is best. I chose to breastfeed my baby because I knew it was the best thing for my babies. Mm. Um, and that was it, not because I thought long-term it's going to protect me from breast cancer, but at that time, that was just a natural choice. My body um, did what it was supposed to, and I was really happy to do that and give my baby something natural and not something out of a tin. So that's why I did it. I just got that extra pat on the back from Plunkett and my woodwife to say, beautiful, this is liquid gold. Your babies will thrive, and guess what? By doing this, you are protecting yourself from breast cancer. Mm. So that had conditioned Very my mind. Good, yeah. So when I discovered this lump, I thought, no, I've breasted my kids. It can't be breast. So I was relying on all this dash and information that I previously knew. No history. So I just went to my GP and said, found this lump. Have a look. Um, and, and, and actually, I'm not – like, I've had kids, right? So I'm not very ashamed and um, – dignified you know I just go I know I know what my job is I do my job and I know what a doctor's job is so I let them do their job you know if they can help me so I just went to him and um and I guess I'm most grateful that I have a doctor who's so switched on who does not have an ego who did not disregard me and who had the common sense to say I am a medical professional and I know enough about breast cancer to know that even if I am a little bit lax I could it could cost me a life so my GP said I've got no idea what this is but I want you to be seen by a specialist and I want it to be seen ASAP because you're flying out. And, you know, this is a doctor and doctors also get given a bad rap because they get they are said to be so precious. You know, you can't call them by their first names. You must address them as doctor, mm-hmm. blah, blah. You know, they get a bad rap. Anyway, I saw him at 4 p.m. on a Monday. He and his practice nurse both got on the phones. They got on the phones that afternoon. They rang from Hamilton to Hibiscus Coast um, to find me a breast surgeon who could see me the next day, and they did. Some, they found me somebody in Green Lane, actually. So if you've ever tried to get yourself a private specialist, you will never find yourself a specialist in less than 24 hours who will see you. So I was very, very fortunate that he called anybody and everybody and found me, and not just anybody, a reputable specialist yeah. who saw me, Um And anyway, long story short, I saw the specialist on Tuesday, had my biopsy on Wednesday and got told on Friday that um, I guess no new, the the news that nobody's ever really ready for, that not only did I have one cancer tumour in my left breast, but I had two. Two. And two tumours on my left breast, yeah. 
Um, and actually, this the second one was the more sinister one, which was undetected in my mammogram, which I couldn't feel. And yeah. is actually the one that was causing me grief was a nothing, but it was the entry that I needed yeah. to have more investigations to find the the more deadlier one that was quietly spreading into my body. Um, and so I got my diagnosis. And another your, good thing. Oh yeah, sorry, you go. I was going to ask, what were your immediate thoughts when you got that diagnosis from the specialist on the phone? Uh, I had prepared myself. Like, I think I'd spent oh, okay. sleepless nights that whole week crying myself to sleep, anxious, scared, nervous. And it's funny because on Friday I had the best night's sleep. I had the best night's sleep <laughs> the day I found out that. Yeah. Yeah. Because what a really funny what I was dealing with. Mm. Um, but I didn't sleep from Monday night to Thursday night because I cried myself to sleep and I thought, what if it is cancer? You know, you just tell from the look on people's faces. Um, so, yeah, and, and then after that, after I had that really good night's sleep, I woke up the next day and I kind of thought I could die um, because it's not one tumour, it's two tumours and it's cancer. And what we know about cancer is so, so scary and breast cancer in particular you know, you can have blood tests for every other cancer, but breast cancer, you can't have regular blood tests. It's not a tumour that's detected in your blood. Mm. So that's why when it comes back, it can pretty much kill women because women don't know that it's come back until it's well and truly advanced and spread into their body and their bones and every other organ. So that was my um, worry, my fear. I had at that point, I had a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old. So I was very, very scared, very scared that um, potentially my kids could lose me and that that scared me and frightened me. How was Look, he's a typical male. He's not a speaker. He just kind of just withdraws within himself. Um, yeah, he was okay. You know, he was – I made the decision. So I got the news and um, they said to me, it's in your left side. What we want to do is we just want to take the left breast out um, and then we don't think you're in medic any immediate medical danger. So we suggest go on holiday, have your four-week-long break, come back in the new year and we will do your surgery and we'll take it from there. But – you know, when you um, get that news, the last thing you want to do is take an uninvited guest on your holiday. You know? yeah, yeah. Um, so we kind of talked about it and we thought, no, let's go. But I didn't want to go for four weeks. So we shortened our trip. Yeah. We came back in two because I wanted to have my surgery this side of Christmas. So I came back. We were gone for two weeks. I came back. I had my surgery and then the next day after, oh, and I said to my surgeon, um, my gut feel was, um, and this is my decision, I guess, you know, I can't speak for everybody else, everybody else is different, but I wanted both my breasts removed. I didn't even want there to be a, a chance that in future down the line yeah, yeah. for me to have to deal with this yeah. ever again, you know. So I guess in that sense, Ben, I was very supportive and he said, look, if that's what you want, go for it, you know, because they talked to us about our options and said, you know, you can have reconstruction. And he said the same thing. 
you know, and we were fortunate we had medical insurance, um, but I still had to fund for the other side because that didn't have cancer. So I paid for that, not my insurer. And, and in that sense, he was very, very supportive and said, look, if we have to put it in the mortgage or borrow money or whatever, we will pay for it and we will do whatever we have to do. So very supportive, um, you know, pretty much your body, if that's what you want to do, do that. And I would great, and I was grateful. And, and, you know, my family was the same. Um, nobody ever second guessed my decision or asked me to reconsider. Um, That's great. And yeah, yeah. And yeah, that, that really was my gut instinct that I wanted it to be gone. So, um, did they say from when they diagnosed that, that they talk about things like if, if you do nothing now, this is how much time you'll have or, or any of that? No. Uh, it's funny, my oncologist offered me, um, offered to do a life expectancy, um, like a data sheet for me. Um, and she said, would you like that? And I actually said, no, I don't yeah, want to see it. Enough, yeah. So I was offered it, but I chose not to look at it because – I'd rather drop dead tomorrow <laughs> yeah. and not know about it than know that I'm going to drop dead soon. You know what I mean? So I, I just made the choice not to see that. But what they did say was, um, go on your holiday, um, have your break. You're in no medical danger, but here's some medication. Right. Take it because it will, whilst we are not doing any um, active treatment, you know, behind the scenes, this medication is going to try and stop any growth or anything like that, any spread. Um, however, because I made the decision to um, come back early and not in the new year, um, and because I was traveling, um, they said to me, two weeks, don't do anything, don't take the meds because you're going to come back in two weeks and we will do the surgery just because of the risk of flying and, um, you know, the blood clotting factor and the interaction with the meds, you know, the DVT and all that mm, sort of risk yeah, yeah. associated. So anyway, so I didn't. Um, and I came back and had my surgery. Uh, had the very next day, my surgeon came to see me and he sat in my chair. So what they do, a very interesting process actually, they will take your tumours out. I don't know if they do this for all the cancers, but particularly for breast. They No, I think this is just for breast cancer. So they take the tumours out. They have like a courier or a taxi or a something on standby. So the surgeon, while you are cut up and on the table, will take the sample of your tumour and your lymph nodes and they will send it off somewhere and that will get looked at and that will get tested. And while you're still under, the surgeon will get notified um, of the lymph node situation. And um, when you say notified, do so, you mean about the lymph node, whether or not it's healthy or whether it's infected? or Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so basically um, they were thinking they had two tumours on my left breast and it was pretty well contained. But when my surgeon went in, he saw that it was kind of into my lymph nodes. Wow. So he took a sample of my lymph nodes and he sent it off to be tested to find out whether that's sufficient or whether while I'm down, he needs to take more yeah. out. And um, 
came back and the best way he likened it is he said, you look at like a fruit bun with all the raisins in the bun. Yeah. And he says, you don't actually know how many raisins are in the bun. And he said, and that's what your lymph nodes are like. He said, when I go in, I don't know, you know, what, how, which half of the bun, what extent the mold has gotten into. Um, so they do the testing and basically what they came back when they cr- tested that cross section of that sample they said it had um, gone into, um, started to go into my lymph nodes. So he just went and he made an educated assessment and he took, everybody has about 40 to 50 lymph nodes in the armpits and he took out 21 lymph nodes and after testing, they found out that eight of those 21 lymph nodes had had the cancer progress into them. And once it starts going into the lymph nodes, it starts to spread into your blood system, etc. And then that's when they call it as advanced or metastasizing. Um, but up until that point, they had expected it to be early stage and fairly contained. So when my surgeon came to see me... Um, he said to me, unfortunately, when we went in, it wasn't what we expected mm. and um, the cancer had actually progressed into your lymph nodes. Oh, can you just hold on for a minute? Yeah, all good. So he said, yeah, unfortunately, not what we were expecting, but when we went in, we realised that we had to take quite a lot of lymph nodes out because your cancer had actually started to travel and spread. So um, that was quite scary. But then what that meant was it opened up another conversation that we hadn't had, which is, so we discovered it's starting to spread. So that means we can do scans, but we cannot tell with certainty in a scan the extent of all the little cells. A surgeon can't pick up every little cell. So that kind of segues into this conversation that with your age and with, you know, the life expectancy of treatment, et cetera, we actually think you need to go and have some really harsh and intense chemotherapy. And um, we want to do whatever we can for best survival outcomes. And you can choose not to have chemo because I think I've got it all. But my educated advice and my recommendation is, I put you onto an oncologist and you start planning some chemo ASAP. So, um, and you did? Re- yeah, I did. Not really what I was expecting because, you know, these guys, they must get trained with all the years and years and years of training that they do. They must go and have some real intense training on bedside manner and how to give even the worst news in the most attractive way possible. I know the surgeon The surgeon who said to me, gave me my results um, and told me I had cancer, actually said to me, do you know what, we could take your breast out and I could do a reconstruction there and then. We could put, give you a silicon, which would be lovely, um, or we could take some tissue from your stomach. We would give you a tummy tuck. You would wake up with a tummy tuck and an 18-year-old's abs and a beautiful breast, and you wouldn't even know that you've lost a breast. And I was like, I'm like sold. I want a tummy tuck, <laughs> you know. Sign me up. Was it? <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of walked out thinking, did I just get told I have cancer? Did I just get told that I could have a tummy tuck, you know? And have abs so, and have this and have that. And have 18 year old abs because I was 40 that year. <laughs> and so, yeah, so amazing skill that they have. Mm. And um, yeah, so. 
So he did. Um, he recommended that I go and have chemo. I did. I had chemo for six months. Six months. Wow. Um, so what's that? So what does that look like? Over six months, how many days a week is that and for how long? Yeah. So I did two different psych uh, I did two different cycles with some sub cycles in between. So for two months, every fortnight, which was four treatments, yeah. I had some very, very, very harsh um drugs put into me and to give you um some indication of that um uh you know i had my first round and um my hair was fine and it was just before i think just a fortnight before valentine's day and my husband and i not that big on valentine's day but you know it was a fortnight before and my sister actually my sister i'll talk about my sister in a minute but my sister lives in australia and when she heard the news, she um, she had just been made redundant in September. Uh, yeah, in September. So she was just going to take it easy till December, Jan, and then look for a job. So when my sister heard my news, she just put her life on hold, booked a one-way ticket and just moved in with us. So I remember it was one, it was a fortnight before Christmas, uh, before um, Valentine's Day, and I think my sister said to my husband, oh, you know, you have to do something. He's like, yeah, yeah, I have to do something. So um, I just had my um, first round of chemo and uh, a fortnight before. And I remember we, um, and my husband insisted on taking me out to a restaurant I had always wanted to go to, which is Oyster and Chop at the Viaduct. And um, I had just had chemo. I was feeling really rough and I really didn't want to go. And my husband was, no typical male sense, I think he thought he was take, He was doing something nice for me. He was going to take me where I'd always wanted to go. He said, no, 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 you'll be fine. Come on, let's go. And I remember I was getting ready. And, and what my surgeon had said to me that day, he came in post-op the next day, he said to me, put you onto an oncologist, recommend you have chemo. My hair was probably down to about here. And then he looked at my hair and he said, and I really think when you're out of hospital, you need to go and get yourself a haircut and you need to just go and get your hair, you know, just get it not too short, but just get it shoulder length. He said, it will be good for you. And I didn't really know because, you know, he's had a lot of experience what he was talking about. But in a very gentle way, he wanted me to get used to the fact that when I wake up in the mornings, instead of having long strands of hair on my pillow, um, it wouldn't be such a shock. So I'd already had my hair cut and um, I had sort of just like a short bob. And I remember getting ready to go for dinner and my son came into my room and he said, and I had no idea. All I could see was this, but I know my son came back into my room and he said, oh, mummy, your hair looks so bad at the back, you need to cover it up. And I said, what? And and I guess, and it's one of the things with my sister, because I caught my sister one day when I'd come out of the shower when she didn't expect me to, um, when I used to wake up in the mornings and go and have my shower, um, she used to sneak into my room and um, clear my pillowcases because um, I used to wake up just in a daze and just be totally kind of out of it. So I think I would wake up and have a shower just to feel a little bit alive and awake, and my sister would sneak into my bedroom, clean my pillowcase, clean my bedding, 
um, so I wouldn't come back and yeah. see or notice. And I hadn't realized. And at that point, when my son said how horrible I looked, my nine-year-old, I put a mirror at the back of my head and realized I just had a bald, bald oh, yeah. patch happening. And then I had all this hair on top that I had no idea about. So that was quite traumatic. My husband's bald. Um, and I remember saying to my husband, and he shaves his head, you know, like, could you shave my hair for me? And I think just for himself, he said, no, I can't which I had respect. Um, so anyway, I went to my hairdresser, my very expensive Rodney Wayne hairdresser. She hugged me, we cried, and I said, please shave my head off. And um, she shaved my head off. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, it in itself was very confronting, probably looking at yourself through lenses that most people will never in their lifetime have yeah. to do. And was that? It was that um, just a couple of months from your or like no my first my first, first fortnight, fortnight um yeah, first fortnight so, yeah. yeah first fortnight later um well that getting ready yeah. for dinner when I put that mirror at the back mm. I realised that it had to happen um so yeah so we did that and that was a very confronting sexting yeah. board a very confronting image of yourself. Um, but yeah, and, and so yes, a chemo was hard. Um, lots of things happen to you, your body, um, you know, get ulcers in your mouth. So you have to, you know, your mouth care is really important. A lot of people lose their nails. So your hand care and your nail care is really important because all your healthy cells start to die, you see, like including your hair cells. Um, so I was really lucky my family wouldn't let me wash dishes and I was too scared. I just said to them, I don't want to wash any dishes. I'm so scared of losing my nails. And I was really fortunate. My nails went black, but I didn't lose them. Um, actually that was my biggest phobia was not so much losing my hair, but it was losing my nails because I just, it just icked me out. (laughs) And so Um, that six months of the chemo and then post, so chemo stopped then after six months? But I would assume, or I'm presuming, it's still not over, right? Like how? Um... Yeah. So then um, the chemo um, went on for six months. After the two months, that first two months was really rough, was very, very rough. I remember my kids and husband would, would watch rugby on a Saturday night and I'd be lying on the sofa one minute watching, next minute kind of out. And one night I remember my one of my kids walked past and he said, oh, daddy, mummy's knocked out again. I heard him, but I just yeah. didn't have the strength to open up my eyes. Um, and it just sucks so much out of you. So, yeah, so the first two months were tough. Then they changed my drug and they put me onto what they call the Texels. So the Texels, um, uh, you can pretty much, um, your hair almost starts to grow back right. at that time. It's a different kind of chemo. You know, the chemotherapy technology has advanced so much that, sorry, can you hear yeah, my kids fun. in the background? That's all good. Oh. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> Um, the, just give me a second. I'm just going to shut no the door. Worries, Is that all right? Good. Give me a second. That's how we roll on this podcast. It's raw and authentic. Kids are having fun. I'm surprised my kids aren't here. Well, actually, they're a bit older, so I can tell them to be quiet. Just waiting for Artie to come back. That's better. Um, so... 
after my drugs changed, like I became a whole new person. I almost even started going back to work um, during my chemo because I, I just felt started to feel normal again, um, very minimal nausea, very minimal impact. I mean, it still impacted my nails and my hair didn't grow back, but little, just like little stubble that men have, I started having a little bit of a stubble on my head. So, um, yeah, so that happened for six months. And then straight afterwards, I had radiation. So I had radiation for three weeks, very intense, every day, 15 minutes. Um, that's a painless process, but if you don't take care of your skin, the, the only way I can liken your skin is if you lack skin care during radiation, your skin almost burns like putting a whole eggplant on the barbecue and then peeling that eggplant skin off. So if you can imagine how black that skin yeah. off that eggplant gets when you cook it on a barbecue, that's what happened. And despite my efforts to keep up my skincare, it was very painful. And you don't realize how delicate your nerves are in your armpit. Um, and if you've ever shaved your armpits and um, you've sprayed uh, deodorant and it stings, um, that's kind of oh, wow. the sensation when the skin there is burnt and peeling off like a charred eggplant skin. It is very uncomfortable, very painful, and you can't sleep at night. So that, so, that radiation was targeted to the breast area yeah. 15 minutes yeah. every day. Yeah, yeah, to kill. It, it, it's all in the in the best interest of enhancing your survival and killing any cells, whichever and however way possible. So radiation is meant to further supplement that chemotherapy just to, yeah. And I guess one of the effects, I mean, my skin has recovered, um, but one of the effects is um, this area where I've had the radiation. Yep. I've got to protect it from the sun um, always. Um, I can't just walk out in a swimsuit mm. or in a singlet out in the sun. I must be covered up just to protect myself because yep. whilst the exterior looks healed, the interior has mm. totally been burnt. Yeah, damaged totally. So, yeah, I did um, three weeks of radiation and then now for the next five years, I'm in year three, every six months I go for some special IVs um, because, I mean, I'm still a healthy 40-something-year-old, but there's different types of breast cancers. And my breast cancer was um, one that was feeding off the estrogen in my body. Wow. So estrogen, so part of my treatment plan is to eliminate all the estrogen out of my body. And what that means is my body literally just went from being healthy 40-year-old to menopause the very next day. So I can't have kids, but I don't want to. Um, but some menopausal. Um, and because I'm menopausal, I my body is at risk of maybe a 65, 70-year-old. I'm at risk of osteoporosis and all that sort of stuff. So every six months, I have to go for these special IVs. IVs yeah. Special IVs just for my bone health. And there's some research that says that it also has anti-cancer properties. It has sort of chemotherapeutic 
um, properties. So I do that every six months and I have to do that for five years and I'm just on lifelong medication until I kind of reach year five or year 10. And then at that point, we might look at getting my ovaries removed because then um, there's no chance of my body producing any um, estrogen. So you're, is it the case that you're in now? Are you in what? Well, I hear the term and I don't fully understand it. Are you in remission or does that happen after? Yeah, that's really weird. Um, in a sense, I am. Um, but I guess remission is when you've had cancer and the treatment has totally eliminated. eliminated all the cancer cells. So I guess in a sense, yeah, the surgery has taken it all out and the treatment, so you can call it remission. But they say breast cancer is the most unpredictable of all cancers, the most deviant of all cancers that there is out there because if I have a breast, there's like 12 different types of breast oh, cancers wow. out there. Yeah, the so mine was the one that, um, you know, estrogen was living off the estrogen. Um, you know, the ones where you hear, you know, there was a Kiwi celebrity, a very young woman, uh, Helena um, McAlpine, I think she um, passed away in her 20s. She was, she was a famous personality. I think she died in her 20s or 30s. So those women who are that young, they get the killer. So they are probably diagnosed very late. And then no trick. So, you know, that's that's a different type of cancer. So breast cancer has very different forms here, lots of different. Mm. So how did, man, that's incredible. That. How did you stay positive, Artie? How do you stay positive through that? Like, what were mm. you doing? Because I would, I would presume that it's somewhat hard to get up in the morning, you know, difficult, mm. just as you already talked about, but the drive to want to continue on, to keep fighting, to keep going. Mm. How did you do that? Uh, look, I think my number one driver were my kids, and I was so, so, so fearful. The only experience my children had knowing anything about cancer was our 89-year-old neighbor who lived alone um, had unfortunately just prior to my diagnosis, died of pancreatic oh, cancer. Wow. And because of her age and everything, she had just chosen to just go and not get treatment. So she went quickly and my kids knew her really well and she's always come to the fence to talk to them and stuff. So when they started asking us about what happened to her, we told them she died of cancer. And the fact that we had told them that that was my biggest fear, that that's all my kids know, that my neighbour had died of cancer. Now I'm telling them about my cancer and in a small person's world, in a very innocent, um, narrow, focused mind, you know, I don't want them to think I'm going to die. So I tried very, very hard. I was a zombie when they were at school, but I made sure at three o'clock, you know, I cleaned my face, I looked perky, I had some coffee and I looked as energetic as I could so they didn't think that I was going to die or I was dying or anything like that um so they were my biggest force I think um and just knowing you know you've got to you've got to rely on um the data and the statistics now I'm not saying that doctors are gods and I I'm 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 I question everything my one of my very close friends as a doctor and what I learned from her was 
you know, if your GP tells you one thing, you know, if you have medical insurance or if you can afford it, just ask to go to a specialist, get a second opinion. Do not ever rely on one person's opinion, diagnosis. If you're not happy, you have the choice and you have the ability to get a second opinion, to go talk to somebody else and to keep asking questions. And, um, and, and I guess that that's kind of my mentality as well. So, um, whilst I'm not saying that I thought my doctors knew everything, I relied on the data they gave me and on the statistics they gave me on this type of cancer, survival rates for this cancer, survival rates after treatment for this cancer. And I just knew that I was paying a very small price at that time for greater long-term success. I guess I told myself, this is a small price to pay to be able to live. And that's what kept me going. What were those um, numbers like, those statistics that you were seeing? Were they, did they add to your perception of this is okay, I'm going to get through this? Or, yeah. yeah, yeah. So so my oncologist was very, very reassuring. And she said to me, we will get you. I'm very, I was very privileged. Not everybody has access to what I had access to. I could afford to have medical insurance, and I did, and I had private health Mm. cover. So I had a private oncologist, and so I was very, very lucky um, that I had what I had, and I never take that for granted. But, you know, my oncologist always said to me, um, and bearing in mind this is in the private context, that, look, the treatment we will give you will be top shelf. It will, it will not cure you, but it, the information we have. My oncologist was very data driven. The, the information we have around this treatment and this type of cancer at this stage of progression in your body, the chances of survival are very, very high if you go ahead with the treatment. So that's fine. But just a note on that, um, a very dear friend of mine who was also a mother at my son's school, who I discovered by chance at Look Good, Feel Better, which is a charity drive by the Cancer Foundation, um, we just found each other. We were both going through the same thing and we were both bald and we showed up to this thing and we hadn't known that we were both going through the same stuff and both our boys were friends wow. at the same school. So, um, you know, whilst I was on this journey through the private sector, she was on the same journey through the public sector. And um, I just want to make the comment, though I had access to a private oncologist, the same oncologist saw this woman in the public sector and we both had the same treatment. So healthcare in New Zealand does not discriminate, particularly for breast cancer. There is a lot of, I guess, support and funding. I mean, we still see those women who protest at Parliament for funding from Pharmac Mm. for certain drugs and all that sort of stuff. And I can't comment on that. I'm not an expert. But what I can say is basically I saw whatever I was having access to in the private space, I saw somebody having access to the same thing in the public space. And I don't know what she was being told, but this is what my oncologist was saying to me. I'm going to get you the best treatment that there is for your survival. Um, 
and to an extent I relied on her, but I also relied, I read a lot. Um, I probably shouldn't have, but I, I needed to know those numbers. Um, I didn't need to see the numbers on my survival that she offered me, but I needed to see the numbers on if I have my surgery. And then on top of that, you know, that reduces the risk to an extent. But if I have my surgery and I have chemotherapy, that reduces my risk to a further extent. If I have my surgery, have chemotherapy and have radiation, then this happens. But if I have all of those treatments and go on meds, then this happens. So that was the stuff that was pushing me through. So, I mean, I hate the meds I take. They turn me into a real monster. Um, it's put a great strain on my marriage. I'm not a nice person to live with. My husband knows that and I know that. And it's whenever I have my oncological review, that's the only thing we talk about is the fact that the meds make me the way that I am. But um, it's a small price to pay. But then what happens is I spend a lot of time working on myself and looking for ways to have that self-awareness, knowing when I'm about to lose my mind and walking away and just saying to my husband, please just leave me alone, just go away, and he just knows. So, you know, I've come to learn to live with the effects of my meds. Um, but, you know, I've, you know, it's a small price yeah, to pay to be alive. Yeah, thank you, Adi, for sharing that stuff. That's, um, that's very deeply personal and private and powerful to hear you speak to those things and to be so self-aware about you know, how that medication mm. makes you feel and the fact that you and your husband can speak about those things and, and are aware of those moments in time when they may happen, I think, well, not I think, I know that's just going to be so helpful for not only for myself just hearing this but also for our audience to that could connect with your story mm. and what you're sharing so openly and raw mm. it's very raw and powerful and moving to hear and I just you've probably touched on some of it but I'd like to know Artie what has this experience and I understand and respect you're in year three now you said that you're still going through how has that or what sort of impact has that had now on your view or outtake on life in general like did you start to keep a diary when you were going through those earlier stages of what had happened for your children? Did you start to record things, whether that was video or handwritten, um, and or now? Do you what's your what's your outlook on on life in general, and and do you have what comes to your mm. mind as your perspective changed on things? Mm. Uh, no, I didn't have a journal or a diary. In fact, I have no photos of myself. I refused take selfies and photos you know some women are proud and and good for them and I'm proud of my journey but you know I I'm relatively vain so as you can imagine I struggled being bald but for me I just don't want to remember myself then um so I didn't keep a journal I have no photographs I have my scars um you know and a lot of women are like these are my battle scars and I'm like well they're ugly and, you know, I didn't have all of this before cancer and I hate them, but, you know, they are a significant reminder of what I have overcome. But I guess my life learnings, and I would tell this to anybody, whether it's a man or a woman, and that is, you know, listen to your body. That is the first thing. 
thing, you know, listen to what is your body telling you. Only you are your body's expert. Only you know whether that hair follicle leg looks normal or not. Only you know whether that lump on your arm is normal. Only you know whether, you know, when um, you're a male and you're trying to go and pee, whether you're struggling, you know, because, yes, that's a sign of prostate cancer. So, um, you know, know your body. And this is not just about breast cancer. This mm. is just everything. Know your body and just know what's normal and what's not. You know, you know what it looks like when you go to the toilet every day and you should know. And I say that in the context, my brother-in-law um, is bravely fighting his battle with bowel cancer at the moment. So, um, you know, um, and he had no symptoms. He just went for some sort of a checkup and he picked up on that. And so I'm, I'm learning a lot about bowel cancer now at the moment as well. Um, and it's making me aware of being aware of my bowel habits. And I'm not afraid to say that because, you know, we all have a body and we all have bodily processes, right? And ultimately our body is our vehicle. And as we age, it is going to like cars need maintenance and warrant of fitness and whatnot. You know, know your body, read the signals. Um, don't put it off. We're all so busy. I was so busy. Um, at that point, I used to work at Subway as well. And so I had my job and I worked at Subway and I had my kids. Um, I was busy. But, you know, don't don't prioritize your life's commitments ahead of your health. You know, listen to your body get it looked at. If you get a reminder to go get your screening or your test, your smear test, your mammogram, your prostate test, your liver test, your annual diabetic blood test, go and get them all done. Don't put it off because you just know what one blood test for diabetes might pick up on what else is going on in your body. So that's what I say and I don't preach, but when somebody says, oh, I've got a reminder and I just say, look, just go just go, don't, you know, prioritize yourself first. That's one of my learnings. And the other thing is, you know, don't be afraid to be your own advocate. You know, doctors probably are the academics, the intelligent, they study a lot, they do know a lot, but they're not God. They can't look at you and know what's going on with you, okay? And that's what I learned. I was actually quite fortunate. I didn't have to go for a second opinion. Yeah. I was just given a second opinion just by chance because the specialist who diagnosed my cancer could not be the specialist who did my um, mastectomy. So he passed me on to another breast specialist who had to go through my notes. And in that process, I just got a second opinion. So I was very fortunate. Um, you know, be your own advocate. Don't just take one health professional's um, opinion. Go and talk to somebody else. Don't be ridiculously mm -hmm. stupid and get four or five different opinions, but just do go and get a second opinion because people make mistakes and people can miss things. And, and, and I know we have spoken a lot, but one of the things that was very important that I haven't talked about, before my diagnosis in November, in May of that year, I started having a lot of intense pain in my breast, a lot of pain. And prior to my diagnosis, and, you know, if you ever go on the breast cancer website, when they have these awareness months, they will talk about some of the lesser known symptoms of breast cancer and unusual pain or redness or swelling as a, as a symptom. Don't always rely on finding a lump for that to be, you know, your whatever. I had a lot of pain, but again, even then I had the common sense. I didn't ignore my body. 
I thought this isn't normal. So I went to my GP again, sensible man. He said to me, I'm not an expert in breasts. I'm going to send you to a specialist. Um, he sent me to a specialist who did an ultrasound and a mammogram and said it's nothing. It's um, probably hormonal related. You're 40 this year and it could be hormonal. And is that because those things can't pick it up or couldn't pick anything up or it's too early? Or? I don't know. Yeah, right. What if he just never mm. saw it? Now, what if I had gone back in May and thought to myself then, let me go and get a second opinion. Could they have found that one that was going through my lymph nodes that was not visible? So, you know, now I look back and I kind of think maybe in May I shouldn't have accepted this guy's word and I should have gone for a second Mm. opinion because it is my breast and, after all, breast cancer is a killer. Um, So... Going back to my point around if there is something, you know, don't always just accept what you're told. Go get a second opinion because, you know, I now kind of think, what if I had done that? Yeah, and that's a great point. You know, I love the points that you just mentioned, being your own advocate and look to get that second opinion, being aware Mm. of our body and look to follow up on those things, Mm. especially when something feels off or odd or Mm. strange or out of place. So. Thank you for sharing those. Those are you sort of touched on some stuff there that was going to be one of the questions, but I'll, I'll adjust this question a little differently because you've already shared what you would pass on. So I'll try and change this question a little bit differently because it was going to be around what would you share or pass on to somebody. Mm. But I'll say, what would you say to somebody that that is experiencing? Because I'm guessing it, did mm. it come as a shock? Mm. Did you experience anger, sadness, mm. a wave of emotions that happened, or you no. didn't experience any of that? Yeah, people go through lots and lots of, why me? Everybody does that, right? Why me? Um, I briefly had a why me moment, very, very briefly. But I guess for me, I'm, I, I'm a person who believes, believes that the life, life's journey is all about everything happens for a reason. That's my view. Everything in my life happens for a reason. Um, but that's just very innately, very personal to me. Um, and after having my, you know, two-second why me moment, I thought there, there's a bigger purpose. You know, this has happened for a reason. And, you know, um, whether it was for greater self-awareness, but what I did find through that journey was that it just opened up my world to the kindness of people, the support, the generosity. I'm an open person. I'm an open book. I'm not a very, um, I don't keep things very close to my heart for very long. Um, I am what you see is what you get pretty much. So um, like at work, I told my boss and my boss said, you know, people care about you. You're very well liked. You know, when people ask where you are, can I tell them? And I said, yeah, tell them. And, you know, just senior managers in the business who I had a very professional and cordial relationship with previously would just come and give me a hug Mm. and um, very unexpected. But, you know, I would just get texts again from very senior people in the business who are so busy, who would under normal circumstances would just walk past my office because they're so busy to even stop to say hi. But I would get a text to say, hey, how are you going? Just thinking about you. Hope it's a good week for you. So, you know, I would say if you're going through something like that, 
even if you're a deeply private person, just open yourself up to as many people that you are comfortable with Mm. because you really need that love and that support. It's a very isolating time and only somebody who has gone through that journey will know what you're going through. People will try to do what they can to comfort you, to say what they can to make you feel better and put you in a good place. But only somebody who has walked in that journey, you know, can understand you. But, you know, if you're like me, I think it helps to talk about it, particularly culturally. Um, You know, some cultures don't talk about health issues, whether whether they're Indians, whether they're Asians, whether they're Pacific Islanders or Maoris or Chinese, they don't talk about it. Mm. And... I am trying to break the mold in that because Indians can be very conservative as a culture and, you know, we need to talk about it. There's no shame in talking about it. There's no shame. You know, if you get breast cancer, it's not because you made some poor life choice somewhere along your life. It just happened. There's nothing to be shameful about. And that's, that's, I guess, one of the things I would say as well. You know, if you have cancer, you know, open yourself up because you need that support because cancer is tough. Man, powerful, beautiful. Mm. Thank you for sharing those. I, um, you, you've answered a lot of other questions that I had here. And I, I just, before I ask the last couple of questions, if I can, I just want to take this time to acknowledge mm. you um, with regards to the way that you show up and the way that you just really beautifully articulated everything, well, not everything, but in, in quite a lot of detail about your journey, particularly with, regards to going through cancer and still being on it now. And mm. I love the comments that you've shared for our audience to hear about the need to speak about these things or find that mm. group or your bubble or whatever you want to call it mm. that you feel comfortable with to to make a start. And then if you can from mm. there, having the courage to be brave like yourself, to mm. then slowly, whatever that looks like or however long it takes to start to branch out and, and develop mm. that. So it's really powerful, Adi. I appreciate you sharing your time with me and, and going through those things. And um, I just want to ask you, we'd love to have you back on the podcast to, to hear how things are going, you know, and because you're in year three now, but you're supposed to be five years. So I'd love to keep this connection and hopefully a friendship um, going with you because I've really appreciated the time. But I'm going to ask these couple of questions for you. So the podcast is about trying to create a better future one person at a time, one story at a time, one challenge or obstacle, Mm. whatever that may be at a time, one listener at a time, et cetera. And I just would love for you to share your insights. And this is just in a very general, broad, open context now. It doesn't doesn't need Mm. to be focused or centered specifically Mm. on your current journey or Mm. even on your professional role as in HR and Mm. that sort of thing. So thinking more broadly. But if this were your opportunity to provide... I guess, say three pieces of advice, yet we'll limit it to three pieces of advice that you would want to share or impart with our audience or with people, no matter where they're from, what they do, their culture, ethnicity, or anything like that. If you had an opportunity to to share three pieces of advice that you would hope would impact people in positive ways, that they would take that information and look to try to apply it so that they could create Mm. a better future for themselves or their families and their communities... Mm. What would those three things be that you would look to share? I would say um, surround yourself with people who are 
able to be a good support model for you and I'm talking about my health journey but it can be anything whether you're on a on a health journey whether you have some other personal issues going on um, and life is a bit tough at the moment you know find a support person because that's really key because when you know when you're having a, um, a crisis because a crisis can be in any form you need a rational sounding board because sometimes when we're in crisis, we're irrational. So find yourself somebody who you can trust, who you consider, um, uh, you know, worthy of supporting you um, and talking to them about your issues and having a sounding board. You know, talk to somebody about whatever your issue is because um, particularly for me, like in the first early days, I used to take my husband for my um, appointments because the information was so overwhelming, it just went straight over my head and I didn't hear a lot of what was being said and I didn't understood, I didn't soak in a lot of what was being said. So if you're going through a divorce, if you're going through a relationship breakup, if you're going through some drug addiction or mental health problems, and if you're going through something, you know, find somebody who you can trust, who can be your support person, who can be rational, who can who you can talk to sensibly when you don't feel that you can be rational. So you can bounce things off because that will add so much value to you. You know, if you're going through a health crisis, you know, take somebody with you. I mean, doctors, you know, it can be intimidating, the medical terminology and language. Legal problems can be intimidating, the legal jargon. Take someone else. Take someone who can just write things on a piece of paper for you so that when you're in the right mindset, you can come back home and you can process and digest. So, yeah, just get that key support around you. And People still don't do that either because they're ashamed, they're too private, it's too personal, it's nobody's business, I'm going to get judged, whatever. But who cares because ultimately, you know, all of these things, whatever your struggles are, all impact your mental health in one way or another. So it's very, very important. Yeah, great point. I you love know? that. So I've got, I've got so far all tied into the one so far to find that mm. right support person or group of people mm. that you can trust and speak to about those. What would, what would be your other two? My other two, um, I don't know. I guess just take time to reflect. Um, for me, again, like I say, my cancer journey in particular, I, I, I didn't – that's not my nature to sit there and, and blame and question and why me, but sit and reflect and think about, you know, this is a struggle. How am I going to turn this around? How am I going to get the best, you know, out of this? And I guess the best that I've gotten is, uh, you know, I've the people who's uh, in my life just to say to them, you know, just, just you know, check yourself, um, be aware of your body, um, and again, I'm talking in the health context, but you know, if you're, if you've just lost your job, if, if you've got a difficult, challenging time, if you've just been kicked out of your family home, you know, just think about, you know, it's tough now, but what is this experience going to teach me, you know, to, 
to shape me in future? You know, how is this life learning going to um, add value to my life when I am out of this hole? Beautiful. I love that as well. And what would be your your third one, Artie? What would be a third piece of advice? Uh, oh, God. <laughs> Lo- love, you know, love your kids hug them tight every day and you know love your loved ones because life is too short um and when you have kind of been looking at death in the eye it's very very scary so you know um and this is a unknown fact about chemotherapy which is um Depending on, and I don't want to put people off, but, you know, sometimes chemotherapy can kill people as well, um, you know, not just the cancer cells. So, and, and I'm not saying that to put people off, but I'm just saying that, I'm just saying that life is too short. So, you know, hug your kids tight every day and, you know, tell people you love, you love them as often as you can because life is so, so short. You just have no idea powerful i love those points find that support person or this group of people that you trust mm. that you can speak to and open up take time mm. to reflect and check yourself and use that time mm. to you know like which probably leads into this third part mm. to love your kids mm. love your loved ones tell them how much you mm. love them regularly mm. don't let those opportunities go by mm. these are just things that i've taken from listening to you speak really love those comments I have one last question for you arty and um for this particular interview anyway but the final question being, what is Arti Patel's definition of a better future? Uh, mm, oh, good health, happiness, um, happy kids, uh, success in um, you know my relationships. Uh, connections, you know, those those long-lasting connections with my friends and my family, and um, you know, just 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 being just con- success to me is just staying connected to all my Facebook friends, really, because uh, as much as Facebook is great for connecting with people that you, you even went to school with, but that is what success is. There's a reason I'm connected to those people. And there's a reason that we are connected. So success to me is just, you know, I'm a people person and it's just having those loved ones in my life and making time for them, making time for people who are important to me. That's what success is to me. Beautiful. Thank you so Mm. much, Ari Patel. Aotearoa, New Zealand, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to the one and only Ari Patel. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation we invite you to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on social media be sure to hit that notification bell so that you can be kept up to date with more inspiring messages from amazing new zealanders each and every week if you found this discussion helpful we invite you to share this link with your networks and tag brian and i when you do we would love to hear from you so please be sure to leave us a review so that we can continually strive to provide the best service possible. As Abraham Lincoln said, the best way to predict your future is to create it. We thank you for your support, Aotearoa, and we're excited to partner with you in working together to create a better future.
Mishko. Mm-hmm.